this talk to you today at the University of Oxford. I would like to thank, of course, first of all, to the PAL discussion group conveners, Professor Catherine Redwell and Sachinta and Irini for the invitation, and to all of you for coming here today. In a 2017 joint colloquium, which was organized by the French and Italian Societies of International Law, entitled The Standards of Due Diligence and International Responsibility, Professor Alain Pellet, who might not be unknown to many of you, opened the discussions with the following remark. J'aime le soft law. I love soft law. In the following 40 minutes, I hope that I will be able, or at least I will try to do my best, to show that to you that due diligence is anything but soft law. The contributions to that colloquium, published by Pedon in French, are nonetheless a very useful addition to the literature on due diligence. Because since 1989, monographed by Ricardo Pizzillo Mateschi, which is actually a really great book, only a few studies have tried to perform a systematic analysis of due diligence beyond this or that narrow field. It is striking, but perhaps not that surprising, that around 80% of the existing literature on the subject is on international environmental law, even if due diligence has a much broader role in international law. This is important because international law today regulates many questions that in the past may have been ignored or left to each state's discretion as a matter of their internal affairs. In addition, international law today involves a much more diverse set of actors, and in this way is gradually combining the public and the private. It is also expected to provide, and I would say, immediate solutions to some of the threats to the global commons, be that climate change, destruction of biodiversity in maritime areas beyond national jurisdiction, or cybercrime. In parallel to these developments, there has also been a sort of revival of due diligence in the case law of international courts and tribunals, and that has taken place for over the last decade or so. It seems all in all that due diligence will be playing an increasingly important role in international law, and we need to think very carefully about its position in the international legal system and the interpretation of its content. In today's presentation, what I will do is examining a number of theoretical and practical questions surrounding the legal nature of due diligence in international law. For instance, what is due diligence? Is it an obligation or rule or mere principle? Is it simply a non-binding standard against which conduct is to be measured? In addition, would it be correct to say that the content of due diligence differs fundamentally across different areas of international law or applications thereof, be that the law of the sea, state security, environmental law, human rights, or cybersecurity? Or can we actually draw connections between uh, the ways in which due diligence has been applied in these areas. Finally, how is responsibility for a failure to exercise due diligence actually operationalized under international law? My talk will be structured in three parts. First, I will deal with the definition and the legal nature of due diligence. Second, I will discuss the content of due diligence as it has been applied and interpreted by international courts and tribunals. Third, I will deal with the question of responsibility. Turning to my first part about the definition and the legal nature of due diligence in international law. First point, the raison d'etre of due diligence is the existence of a risk of harm that needs to be averted. It may not only be another state that lies at the origin of that risk, rather it could be, as has been mostly the case, 
that of individuals, corporations, and other non-state actors whose actions may not necessarily be attributable to any state. The exercise of due diligence by a state serves to protect certain legal interests by that state taking measures that are reasonably available to it that in turn prevent a given risk to those interests from materializing. Second point, due diligence is a natural byproduct of a state's sovereignty under international law. The state's monopoly of power and authority within its territory and under its jurisdiction and control comes with a host of duties not only vis-a-vis -vis its own constituency, but also vis-a-vis -vis other states and their nationals. This was recognized by the International Court of Justice as early as in its first case, the Call for Channel case. You will all recall the dictum of every state's obligation not to allow knowingly its territory to be used for acts contrary to the rights of other states. Third point, in the existing scholarship on due diligence, I think it's safe to say that a great diversity of terminology has been used when it comes to its definition. We have references throughout to the obligation to prevent and punish, the duty of vigilance, positive obligations, best effort obligations, and so on and so forth. But are all of these the same thing? Perhaps this differing terminology merely reflects the spectacles through which we are looking at the phenomena. Either we are placing the emphasis on the source of obligation, or rather on the criteria to determine compliance or non-compliance. This recalls a long-standing and almost existential debate by now in international law, best illustrated in the attempt of the International Law Commission to, uh, under, the, under the leadership of the Special Rapporteur Roberto Ago, to classify obligations under international law into obligations of conduct vis-à-vis -vis obligations of result, positive and negative, primary and secondary. Where would due diligence actually fit in? But in the end, does it even matter, given that the only vestige of that debate and the articles is its focus on secondary obligation? Argos' other attempts at the classification of international obligations, in particular that between the obligations of conduct and result, were abandoned, having been criticized for conflicting with the understanding of these concepts in certain domestic legal systems. According to James Crawford, Argos' attempt at classification, eventually abandoned by the ILC, would have, and I quote, clarified the multiple international obligations of due diligence, which was not, however, within the scope of the ILC codification process on state responsibility. The chaos doesn't stop there. There is an equally impressive chaos when it comes to defining due diligence in terms of its legal nature or character. Is it a concept? Is it a standard, a principle, a rule, an obligation from the least to more invasive on a normative scale? Many use these terms interchangeably, notwithstanding their different normative values. This group of offenders, incidentally, also includes, includes the ILC itself, if you look closely at the limited references to due diligence and its instruments that deal with, on the one hand, responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts, i.e. for breaches of international obligations, and the other regime, the liability for acts which are not prohibited under international law, in essence, the liability for damage which may be caused by lawful activities. States, too, refer to due diligence with the plurality of qualifications. I have not undertaken a detailed study on pronouncements of states, but I suspect that it is in the interest of certain states, at least, to keep that constructive ambiguity 
and to keep the content rather elusive and vague. But don't you worry. What I will show you today is that at least international courts and tribunals almost have embraced the role uh, and the leading chevalier on, and have overwhelmingly identified, applied, and interpreted due diligence first as an obligation under customary international law and second as an integral element to certain specific obligations of conduct under different treaty regimes. It has to be said that the reasoning of international courts and tribunals, of course, is not always necessarily convincing or watertight on this point. Rare have been the cases where the court has actually gone on to explore the relevant state practice and opinion juris to justify, for example, drawing conclusions as to customary character, not only of general obligation of due diligence, but also what I would call its offsprings. <laughs> However, such assertions have nevertheless had a significant normative impact on the consolidation of due diligence as an obligation proper, as well as its content being the conditions and scope of application. In addition, by characterizing due diligence as an obligation, courts and tribunals have gone on to determine the legal consequences that follow from its violation. This is something that I am quite sure they would not have done if they regarded due diligence as a mere soft law or some sort of indeterminate threshold against which state conduct is to be measured, as some of the authors have argued. Having spent now some time at the court, at the ICJ at least, I can assure you that the court is quite thorough and positivist when it comes to some of these uh, uh, difficult choices. And the mere fact that sometimes the citations do not appear in the actual judgment, as you read it, does not mean that there might not have been in earlier drafts very careful citations to and references to practice or opinion juris and dec relevant declarations of states. But let's take a step back. What is actually an obligation under international law? Would due diligence meet those requirements and why does it matter? If it is indeed an obligation, what is the source of that obligation of due diligence? An obligation may, of course, contain terms which set out its addressees, its object, its purpose, a time frame for its implementation, the means to be used, or the result to be arrived at. These terms may be expressed or implied, may be defined broadly or narrowly, or may be left undefined, which is the glorious task of international courts and tribunals to give meaning to them. They may prescribe a result to be reached, the means to be used, or the outcome to be avoided. They may be strict or flexible. In other words, the infinite variety of possible terms does not necessarily deprive an obligation of its quintessential character, which is that of a binding prescription, the failure of to comply with which triggers international responsibility. Of course, the binding character of the obligation is what distinguishes it from a mere standard. A standard, on the other hand, may be treated as a hortatory or aspirational expression of how things should proceed as may be expected as a matter of good cooperation, neighborliness, comity, or political convenience. The violation of a standard is not per se capable of triggering legal consequences under international law. It is not correct, in my view, to speak of a standard in the sense of something that lacks a normatively determinate content. I would submit that qualifying due diligence as a standard is also dangerous, because this seems to prompt many authors, and maybe even some judges, 
to jump to the conclusion that it is a subjective standard that depends primarily on the capacity of each state. But be reminded, capacity is only one aspect of the puzzle when you are evaluating due diligence. And in fact, most recent judgment seem to downplay the role of the, of the different capacity of states, namely different economic development of states, as has been the case in the context of ITLOS, both advisory opinions, where the tribunal clearly underscored that whenever we are trying to deal with some global commons, we are actually have interest to ensure that there are no states of convenience where you can go around and cherry pick lower or higher standards depending on your capacity and try to build in your, your own um, characterization as developed or developing state uh, as having a different uh, level of obligation. There are many other elements, in fact, inherent to due diligence that are objective in character. So even if capacity itself may no longer be a prominent, uh, a prominent as criteria, in fact, where many global commons are at stake. I would submit to you that due diligence is a self-standing obligation under customary international law. That obligation may comprise specific elements under customary international law or give rise to what I would like to think as the offspring of the due diligence obligation, such as the obligation of prevention, the obligation to conduct an environmental impact assessment, etc. In cases of specific treaty obligations of conduct, such an obligation to prevent or to punish or to have due regard to the interests of other states or to consult or to provide full and protection and security in the context of investment treaties, due diligence in those cases operates as an express or implicit element of, uh, that gives meaning and content to that obligation. I do not think that it is legally correct, nor is it desirable, neither from a normative nor policy perspective, to speak of due diligence as a standard, much less as soft law. This brings me to the second part of my presentation, the content of due diligence as an obligation per se under customary international law, or as an integral element of obligations of conduct as they find expression in particular treaty regimes. Having shown to you that due diligence is an obligation under customary international law or an element of specific treaty obligation rather than a standard, I would like to turn to a common, but I would submit to you incorrect assumption about due diligence. That assumption is nicely captured in the 2016 ILA study on due diligence, which stated, and I quote, that there is no uniformity in the standard of conduct expected of states to comply with their due diligence obligations that due diligence is fundamentally different from area to area in international law, from the capacity of one state to another, and so on. This, in fact, may seem quite consistent with, for instance, what the ICJ stated in the Bosnia genocide case. That, and I quote, paragraph 429, the content of the duty, duty to prevent varies from one instrument to another according to the wording of the relevant provisions and depending on the nature of the acts to be prevented. I'm not saying that these statements are baseless, of course, far from me to say so. But my thesis simply is that a careful review of how international courts and tribunals have analyzed due diligence shows us a slightly different picture. In this picture, there are, in fact, many common elements to the due diligence analysis as performed by various courts and tribunals, quite irrespective of the specific subject matter in which the question has arisen. To that extent, 
Courts and tribunals are playing an instrumental role in the consolidation and clarification of the content and scope of due diligence under general international law. While, of course, they, some of their pronouncements may be made on the basis of a specific treaty provision, quite often some elements of their reasoning are severable from the specificities of that treaty provision and, in my view, shed light on the content and scope of due diligence as a matter of general international law. A case like certain activities between Costa Rica and Nicaragua is a good case in point. As such, on the basis of my review of case law, I would submit to you that we are in fact talking about a self-standing obligation of due diligence and in certain cases due diligence is an integral element of more specific obligations of conduct in a given treaty regime. Take the example of the way that the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea has identified due diligence as an integral element of the specific obligations including those set out in Article 58, 3, 192, and 62, Paragraph 4 of UNCLOS. For instance, Article 58, Paragraph 3 of UNCLOS provides that states operating in the exclusive economic zone of other states shall have due regard to the rights and, and duties of the coastal state. Or take the way that the Philippines-China Tribunal concluded, and I quote, that the general obligation to protect and preserve the marine environment as set out in Article 192 UNCLOS, includes a due diligence obligation to prevent the harvesting of species that are recognized internationally as being at risk of extinction and requiring international protection. The Philippines-China Tribunal then went on to state that Article 192 imposes a due diligence obligation to take those measures necessary to protect and preserve rare or fragile ecosystems as well as the habitat of depleted, threatened, or endangered species and other forms of marine life. Therefore, in addition to preventing the direct harvesting of species recognized internationally as being threatened with extinction, Article 192 now extends to the prevention of harms that would affect depleted, threatened, or endangered species indirectly through the destruction of their habitat. This is quite significant expansion of the obligation for those of you who consider themselves textualists when it comes to the interpretation of treaties. But due diligence is not just about prevention. Due diligence also find it, finds it, its way in informing the content of other primary obligations, like the ones under UNCLOS, which require states to have due regard or to ensure. You will also immediately probably think about Article 1, common to the Geneva Conventions in the context of international humanitarian law the obligation to respect and ensure respect for the conventions in all circumstances. You may also instantly think about the DRC v. Uganda case, where the court comes with a quite broad understanding of what the duty of vigilance entails, in, the, in particular in the context of the occupation by Uganda of the Ituri region. As I mentioned earlier, on the basis of my review of the practice of international courts and tribunals, I have identified several common elements to their analysis of due diligence, quite regardless of the subject matter at stake. I will now proceed to describe those elements, which I have analytically organized into three subgroups. First, there are those elements which trigger the obligation of due diligence, if you wish, which are at the very source of it. Then there are those elements which deal with, go to the content and scope of application of due diligence. And then finally, third group, there are those elements which 
contain certain inherent flexibility and in fact may change depending on the circumstances of each case and perhaps to some extent with the underlying subject matter. So let us focus on the first category. What triggers the obligation of due diligence? Three points here. First, due diligence is triggered by the existence of constructive knowledge of the risk of harm assessed on an objective basis. The court was very clear in paragraph 432 of the Bosnia genocide. A state may be found to have violated its obligation to prevent, even though it had no certainty at the time when it should have acted but failed to do so, the genocide was about to be committed or was underway. For it to incur responsibility on this basis, it is enough that the state was aware or should normally have been aware of the serious danger that acts of genocide would be committed. In other words, the test is was aware or should normally have been aware. This has also been the approach of the European Court of Human Rights. If you look into the cases, for example, on Article 2 on the right to life, like Osman v. UK. Second, due diligence is triggered by the ability of the state to foresee the risk of certain activity causing harm, even though the extent of harm need not necessarily be foreseeable. Think again. Uh, about DRC v. Uganda, paragraph 179, the quite expensive way in which the court considered that Uganda was responsible not only for the acts of its military in the Ituri region, but also for failing to prevent acts by other private individuals and other entities uh, from looting uh, the resources. Third, the character of the risk as such is irrelevant. In other words, it is not relevant whether it is a one-off risk or a systemic risk, systematic risk, which arises from the recurring, recurring practice that was very clearly stated by the ITLOS uh, in its fisheries advisory opinion. Let us turn to the second category of elements. What is the scope which go to the scope and content of due diligence? Here there are several points, uh, and I will go through them briefly, and we can all obviously have discussion later. Due diligence is assessed exclusively by reference to international law, so the state cannot simply rely on its domestic law or on any standard it may have come forth in its domestic law. You will recall that this discussion goes back to even the origins of the Roman law, the diligentia quam in suis, and the famous uh, interpretations of that by Max Huber in British interests in the Spanish zones of Morocco, as well as in the island of Palma's case. And we can even go back to Alabama, uh, where the UK was trying to put forward that argument. In essence, that due diligence is to be appreciated in light of what the state would normally do vis-a-vis -vis its own constituency and domestic. So, in other words, this is long part of the history of public international law. Second, due diligence applies extraterritorially. This was the approach uh, followed in the Bosnia genocide case, where the court pretty much expanded our notion of limiting the obligation of due diligence to the jurisdiction. And remember, the court spoke about the capacity to effectively influence the events which is quite an interesting, uh, expansive test of the uh, territorial scope of application of due diligence. The European Court of Human Rights, as well, 
in cases like Ilasko v. Moldova, where one of the states, Moldova, lost effective control over parts of its territory, over Transnistria, went on to say, and I quote, that states must endeavor with all the legal and diplomatic means available to it, vis-a-vis -vis foreign states and international organizations, to continue to guarantee the enjoyment of the rights and freedoms defined in the European Convention of Human Rights. Third point, due diligence is an obligation of conduct. I think by now there is no question about that, and the court, as, as well as ITLOS, have in various cases, including pulp mills, um, recognized that. In other words, we can't really expect the state always to succeed to prevent the harm from occurring. Fourth, the obligation of due diligence applies throughout the entire period of the activities which pose the risk of harm. The court has recognized that in the pulp mills and that has, has been taken up as well in the Kishanganga arbitration before the PCA, paragraph 450. Fifth, the reasonableness and appropriateness of the concrete measures undertaken by the state to avert the harm is assessed by reference to what is normally expected of a state in normal circumstances and not in cases where, let's say, you have hostilities or you may have other uh, potential you know, circumstances precluding wrongfulness you may want to invoke to justify that you couldn't normally perform your due diligence analysis. And this is where I think it's quite nicely, these, these, these concepts like reasonableness, appropriateness, normality, these are by definition standards, not due diligence as such, which is an obligation in my view. Um, sixth point in this, our second category, it is not sufficient for a state to adopt regulatory or administrative measures, but enforcement and supervision mechanisms have also to be put in place by the state. The court has recognized that in the pulp mills, paragraphs 185, 197, has done the same thing in the fisheries advisory opinion, and in fact it went as far in paragraph 138 as to say that adequate sanctions to dissuade future instances of illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing have to be provided for. The Philippines-China uh, award uh, does the same thing. Finally, seventh point relating to the scope and content of due diligence, it is no defense for a state to argue that even if, had taken, if it had taken all measures reasonably available to it, the harmful outcome would still have taken place. The court was very clear on this point in the Bosnia genocide case. This brings me to the third and final category of common elements to the due diligence analysis. These may indeed, as I mentioned earlier, vary depending on the circumstances of each case and depending on the subject matter at stake. First, due diligence is assessed in concreto on the basis of specific factual circumstances as such, while in environmental law context, a requirement of conducting environmental impact assessment, uh, which the court has recognized as having customary character, um, may indeed satisfy the obligation of due diligence. In human rights law, you may think that, for instance, ensuring that you place uh, specific legislation in force uh, may be the most appropriate uh, means of satisfying due diligence, while in law of the sea, you can think about, let's say, reinforcing the operation of one's 
patrol boats in the exclusive economic zone. So obviously there is, on that level of facts, there is a difference in terms of how you evaluate whether due diligence has been complied. Second point, due diligence may depend on the gravity of the risk at stake. In other words, the graver and more imminent the risk, the more urgent are the measures that need to be undertaken. You may recall the International Court of Justice in the Corfu Channel case, where the court speaks of the grave omissions of Albania in failing to warn the, the two uh, English warships navigating through the channel. Or Bosnia genocide, where the court at several parts uh, insists on the grave nature of the crime of genocide at stake. Uh, and noting that the respondent not only did not take any action to prevent the genocide from occurring, even though it has an obstructor, uh, the uh, ability to influence the course of events, giving, given its geographical proximity to the events, given also several legal and political ties to the VRS forces, which went on to commit genocide in Srebrenica. Third and fourth points in this category uh, are quite related. The content of the obligation of due diligence may fluctuate with the passage of time. Itlos recognized that very clearly in its seabed advisory opinion in paragraph 117 and went on to state that the actual application of due diligence could depend on the state of science or technology and may therefore justify at times precautionary approach in situations of scientific uncertainty. As an aside, a very interesting judgment has uh, come out recently from the Dutch Court of Appeal in The Hague in Urgenta v. Netherlands, uh, holding that the Netherlands must reduce their greenhouse emissions by 25% by the end of 2020 in order to comply with their obligations under Article 2 and 8 of the European, Court, European Convention of Human Rights. Interestingly, in its analysis, the Court of Appeals adopted a precautionary approach when considering the risks associated with climate change, going on to say that in case of dangerous activities and when there is a known real and imminent threat, the state must take precautionary measures to prevent infringements to the greatest extent possible. So this is basically a picture, a picture of due diligence, which has quite a lot in common in different areas of international law and Bring, brings us to a conclusion that there is some common ground and so we maybe we may reconsider our usual assumptions that uh, its content is so fundamentally different depending on the area at stake. This brings me to the third part of my presentation. What is the responsibility of states for the failure to exercise due diligence? Having shown that there are common elements to the obligation as such, as identified and examined by international courts and tribunals. In this section, I will be discussing the engagement of responsibility for an internationally wrongful act, which consists of a failure to comply with the due diligence obligation, whether that obligation is sourced under customary international law or under its specific expression in treaty law. The natural place, of course, would be to go and look at the articles on state responsibility. But as I mentioned already earlier, very little of the discussion on the classification of international obligation uh, was retained in the ILC's project. The articles, as adopted in 2001, contain only one ex express provision on the breach of obligation to prevent, 
which sheds some light on the temporal element of identifying a breach. And it says that the breach of an international obligation requiring a state to prevent a given event occurs when the event occurs and extends over the entire period during which the event continues and remains not in conformity with that obligation. In addition to the responsibility regime, as I mentioned earlier, due diligence plays also quite a key role in the context of what is known as the liability regime under international law for damages caused by conduct which is not prohibited by international law. And here, the key references are the 2001 ILC draft articles on prevention of transboundary harm, uh, Article 3 of which provides that the state of origin shall take all appropriate measures to prevent significant transboundary harm or at any event to minimize the risk thereof and the 2006 RLC principles on the allocation of loss in the case of transboundary harm arising out of hazardous activities. But for the purpose of this presentation, let me zoom on the regime of responsibility proper, um, because in my view, responsibility for breaches of due diligence does not really sit well with the general framework of state responsibility as it applies to violations of other obligations. Why? Uh, let me leave you with four principal reasons, which we can obviously discuss subsequently. First, the assessment of whether a breach occurs entails an assessment of whether the state knew of the risk, which makes naturally fault kick into the process. The ILC, you will be recalled, excluded fault as an element of an internationally wrongful act in principle, unless the primary rule dictates otherwise. And we all know the eternal problems with establishing fault in respect of what Nietzsche would probably call uh, as states in the name of the coldest of all are called monsters. <laughs> and those called monsters have no soul, no state of the soul. So question mark as to how really to operationalize that responsibility. Second, a failure to comply with due diligence obligation is akin to an omission an omission to take reasonably available measures to prevent a given risk from materializing and causing harm. But in international law, there is no such thing as responsabilité pour fait d'autrui, or some kind of strict liability, as is foreseen in some legal systems. For example, in the context of activities of a non-state actor, a state will only be responsible for its omission to prevent the harm flowing from those activities if, in the circumstances it knew, or should have known of those activities and whether it had the capacity, meaning reasonably available means, to prevent the harm and yet did nothing to prevent that harm from occurring. Alternatively, if the state's involvement goes beyond mere omission, then of course we are talking about the scenario where the activities of non-state actor could be attributable to the state and then we get into the usual questions of control over non-state actor and namely the specifics of its activities leading to the harm, if we had to stick with the court on this in the Nicaragua or Bosnia genocide or DRC Uganda, or the specifics of the organization structure or functioning of the non-state actor if we had to follow a, a more flexible overall control standard. Third, and quite fundamentally, I think the reason why due diligence obligations in terms of responsibility do not sit well with the overall system is in respect of uh, the obligation to exercise due diligence is triggered at the moment the state has knowledge, as we've just established, or should have had knowledge of the risk of harm. 
So from that moment, you say an it's an obligation of conduct. The way you evaluate whether it has been breached is simply by looking at the measures, at the circumstances which were available. And if the state did not take any of those measures, there is a violation. But there is a paradox here, because the way at least the court has interpreted the responsibility that arises thereof, it premised it on the realization or materialization of the harm. The court goes on in paragraph 431 of the Bosnian Genocide and says that the responsibility only attaches or only materializes when the harm, when the actual genocide occurs. Um, in my view, this does not really fit well with the very nature of due diligence itself as an obligation to ensure, to prevent, or to avert risk from materializing. I think it's, it, we have to stop and at some point of just thinking about responsibility as a purely retrospective remedial means, but start thinking much more as a, also a preventative mechanism. Um, and in the sense of trying to dissuade states from future violations. Um, fourth point, there are very complicated issues in respect of operationalizing actual reparation for a potential breach of due diligence and the responsibility that it would attach thereto. Several methodological questions like causation or the burden of proof uh, may come into play in situations where you may have various causes of the injury, not just one of them being the state who has failed to prevent on its own territory. But as you know, the breaches of some of these obligations are really not linear, and you may easily have other states being involved in the, in the puzzle. The International Law Commission concluded in the articles, relying on the Corfu Channel and the Tehran hostages cases, to the effect that, and I quote, although in such cases the injury in question was effectively caused by a combination of factors, only one of which is to be ascribed to the responsible state, international practice and the decisions of international tribunals um, do not support the reduction or attenuation of reparation for concurrent causes, except in cases of contributory fault. But if we think about it at a more conceptual level, should state A, which let's say has failed to prevent the non-state actors' activities, bear the same responsibility in terms of reparation as other potential states that may have been more directly involved by, for example, supplying the non-state actor with intelligence or means to go on and commit particular harm? In such cases, should we think about the potential of a joint or several regime of responsibility, as Judge Sima alluded to in his separate opinion in the uh, oil platforms case? Um, or would it be inequitable to make that state, let's say, pay, considering that the state may not even have foreseen the injury that would follow, or the kind of injury that would follow? In other words, we see that the responsibility for the violation of due diligence presents difficult conceptual issues not only at the level of engagement or the origins of responsibility, but also at its potential content and implementation of that responsibility. There is also a potential question for the burden of proof. The court, you will be recalled in the Corfu Channel, 
stated very clearly, well, the fact that you have just effective control of the territory does not automatically mean you're responsible. Yet, the court made a very interesting remark. The state may, up to a certain point, be bound to supply particulars on the use made by it of the means of information and the injury of its disposal, at its disposal. The court made a similar point in the Diallo case, in the merits judgment, uh, insisting on the fact that quite often the claimant may be deprived even from access to the relevant evidence. And so at that point, potentially more flexible approach is required when we are dealing with uh, trying to demonstrate that there has been omission and that but for that omission, the harm would not have occurred. Um, in light of these four elements, it would appear, therefore, quite surprising that the International Law Commission said quite so little on this important aspect of responsibility of states. In particular, as we witness that the actual sources of harm in international law are increasingly uh, non-state actors, often operating on its territory thanks to the assistance of other states, which requires quite different considerations from the rest of the general regime of responsibility. Or perhaps it is not that surprising after all, since the ILC's purpose was to produce residual rules on responsibility and not to make substantive law. This brings me to the concluding remarks of my talk, in which I will summarize my findings. First, due diligence constitutes an obligation proper under customary international law. It is also an integral element of many specific obligations of conduct under various treaty regimes. In my view, there is very little benefit to speak of due diligence as a standard rather than an obligation. Second, my review of the existing international case law shows that we have a common understanding on the content of due diligence, which dispels a long-standing myth that the content of due diligence is fundamentally different from area to area of international law. Certainly, as I have alluded to, there are some subject-specific or case-specific elements, but those aspects are much fewer in number than the elements which are consistently taken into account regardless of the specificities of the subject matter involved. Third, I think we do face serious issues that need further clarifications in terms of operationalizing the responsibility of states for breaches of due diligence. In particular, at times where many real sources of the risk lie in the activities of organized criminal terrorist groups beyond the control of a single state. Moreover, in terms of assessing the potential content of responsibility, the question of causation or burden of proof is quite challenging in general, but particularly when it comes to assessing the reparation due in respect of breaches of due diligence obligation. Finally, by ascribing content to due diligence, international courts and tribunals have certainly been acting as the agents of development of the law in this area. The question is whether state practice and opinion juris necessarily reflect that or will follow suit to confirm such application and interpretation of due diligence, or whether in the future we states will be tempted in their negotiations of new specific obligations of conduct to be much more prescriptive in defining due diligence obligations namely by mentioning specifically the measures they can be expected to undertake so as to restrict eventually the scope of their potential responsibility. Thank you very much, and I look forward to our discussion.